That's an interesting question because it's really tough to predict U.S. foreign policy right now because I think U.S. foreign policy is a bargaining chip for the Trump administration to consolidate its leadership in the Congress. And we can see that in the vote fuss that they made uh, with regard to Russia. Uh, the Trump administration is using the Russian policy to uh, build a majority in the Congress among uh, Republicans, reaching out to uh, people like McCain, for example, to the Republican establishment, because Trump's initial Russian policy went against all sorts of established Western interests in Washington, D.C. So basically, he's, after the defeat of his health care bill, basically, this is an important area in which he can actually assert leadership, which he has to. So in this sense, we know from the press that Mr. Flynn met with the Erdogan administration, apparently with Erdogan's Minister of Foreign Affairs, as well as the Ministry of Energy, who happens to be Erdogan's son-in-law. And the former CIA director also said that in these talks prior to U.S. elections, the issue of Fethullah Gulen came up. And the former CIA chief was basically emphasizing the fact that apparently warned them about that these negotiations might be illegal because whether Fethullah Gulen can stay in the country or not is actually under the jurisdiction of the courts and not a decision by the administration to be made. Briefly, just tell us what the significance of Mr. Gulen is and who is, uh, what his background is. Fethullah Gulen is basically a cleric who is sitting at the top of an intricate network of schools, hospitals, universities, banks, companies, which all come together in some sort of a religious order. But the religious order itself is basically engaged in all sorts of economic, social, and political activities. The Gulen community was a founding member of the AKP's first coalition in 2002. They supported the AKP for almost a decade, They acted as its appendix in the state bureaucracy, and then they had a big fallout in 2013 over basically who's going to have control over the state apparatus. And they got basically purged by the Erdogan government. And now they're trying to extradite him. There are several things, of course, we can think about in these negotiations. One is the Gulen file, and of course, what kind of files... Gulen has about Erdogan. But that's not the only file. Uh, Riza Sarraf, who was um, very important in the Erdogan's dealings with Iran and um, basically benefiting handsomely from this Iran's circumvention of American embargo. There's also a case in Tehran against these illegal tradings because uh, Iran wants to know where all that money went. Just to be clear, at the heart of this corruption scandal was the issue of exporting gold to Iran in order to get around the U.S. and European sanctions on Iran. And the amount of transactions the general manager of the largest state-owned bank had undertaken was an alleged $140 billion between 2009 and 2012. And Reza Sarraf is, if I'm not mistaken, he's on trial in New York now. Yes, exactly. Well... We don't know what's going to happen because the prosecutor of Manhattan, as you know, Pete Barara, had to step down 
on Mr. Trump's orders. We also know that the deputy uh, director of Halk Bankası, which is a publicly owned bank in Turkey, was also detained in the last month, in the previous month. So this is also interesting because we know that Halk Bankası, or the name of Halk Bankası, its brand, was implicated in news about ISIS oil trade. Yes. As well as oil trade with the Barzani regime in Erbil, circumventing again the Iraqi constitution and the regime in Baghdad. So this uh, is quite okay. an intricate scandal. I mean, basically it involves the autonomous regional Kurdish government, uh, Barzani's group, and Iranians, Iranian regime on one side. And this Reza Sarraf was an Iranian yeah. citizen, but he was dealing with this state-owned bank in Turkey. And it involves, presumably, people who are within Mr. Erdogan's family. Yes, and also we know that when you look at the Turkish budget, uh, there is an enormous amount of cash in the budget and no one knows where it comes from. And this has been the case for several years now. So the amount of money that is coming into Turkey is so big and it's unregulated, which is basically legitimately leading us to suspicions about money laundering as well. So basically all these files are going to be implicated in the negotiations between Washington and Ankara. Since we don't know exactly the extent of these files and the extent of these negotiations, we cannot for sure say how these relationships evolve. But obviously... The stepping down of Mr. Flint had a negative effect. It was a setback for Erdogan. Mr. Erdogan. Yes. And also, if we look at the military strategy, their security strategy, we can still say that they are not quite aligned with U.S. foreign policy or with U.S. security policy in the region. Uh, we see it uh, with, for example, over Egypt. We see it over, especially, you know, U.S. policy towards Kurds. We see it in their Cyprus policy. So on April 25th, the Turkish military planes bombed Kurdish fighters in Iraq's Sinjar region and northeast Syria, thereby killing dozens in a widening campaign against groups, which they say they have ties to PKK, Kurdistan Workers' Party, which is in a military conflict with the Turkish state. The Turkish military targets included YPG, a Kurdish militia that has played an important role in American-backed operation in Syria against the uh, Daesh, the Islamic State, ISIS. The United States and Turkey, as you said, have been sharply at odds over this YPG Kurdish militia. The U.S. military officials regard this group as an essential partner, and Turkish government is saying that YPG is closely linked to PKK and thereby is a terrorist group. Can you talk about this attack and the timing of it just a week after this plebiscite and this referendum? I think it has more to do with domestic politics. So basically, um, I already talked about uh, the CHP's recent moves, both with regard to Europe and with regard to these policies. Very interestingly, the deputy chairman of the CHP made an announcement basically saying that the CHP supports this attack by the AKP. And even finds it actually quite late. So they are not only supporting AKP's attack, they're uh, saying it's been already too late. Why didn't you and, do it earlier? Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, and uh, deputy chair who makes this announcement happened to be the Turkish consul in Mosul who have been uh, detained, who have been arrested by ISIS and held as a ransom for a few months 
before being handed over to Turkish authorities. So it's interesting that Turkish consul in Mosul, just prior to the ISIS invasion, is now the deputy chair of CHP. And then basically supporting AKP's military maneuvers in the region. As I see it, I think these bombings are instruments for the AKP to consolidate uh, its leadership. So pretty much like the Trump administration, I think, when uh, an administration, it goes for any administration, when an administration cannot consolidate its leadership at home, uh, then you turn to overseas, either in military action or starts a international crisis, so that you can assert your leadership and basically say to the opposition, this is not the time for opposition. We have to get together to so basically create this rally around the flag effect. That's, I think, one major explanation of this offensive. Basically, look, the uh, precondition of uh, the current power block, the MHB, AKP, and also now we can also add, I think, as His Majesty's loyal opposition, the CHP, is dependent on Iraq and Syria policy. Uh, the interest that all these political factions have is basically to stop PKK gaining a stronghold in Syria, as well as becoming influential in Iraq. So that's the only thing that keeps all of these warring factions together politically. That's probably what they have in common also with all these regimes in the region too. The Iraqi, the Iranian, the Syrian exactly. regime. Exactly, exactly. So I suspect that as long as the crisis lingers in Iraq and in Syria, as long as there's uncertainty, as long as there's no political settlement in Syria and in Iraq, this regime will continue in Turkey. And the day it's settled, I think this whole regime will come down. That's quite because, a prediction. <laughs> yes. You don't mean immediately, but you mean gradually it would be losing its yeah, legitimacy. Because there is no political objective of this coalition. We call it the Milli Mutabakat, national consensus government. The consensus is based on uh, the anti-PKK interest. Once that is settled, once there's nothing left for Turkey to do in Syria and Iraq, then uh, I think there will be no political rationale for this coalition. So let's look at, for example, what might be the political goal of this military action, since every military action has to have a political objective. Aerial bombing of this area will kill certain amount of PKK members and so on and so forth, but it will not wipe out PKK from this region. Uh, you need ground troops to be able to do that, and ground troops are not in sight. The street yes. protests that followed the uh, referendum, what does that tell us? How can left and democratic forces in Turkey create a viable alternative against the ruling bloc? First of all, I think labor rights is the most important issue. So I think it's very important to break the hegemony of uh, CHP over opposition forces in Turkey. I think new venues have to be experimented and these political venues have to specifically prioritize labor rights. I think the only way to break this increasing polarization process within Turkey and the consolidation of these you know, secularist Islamist identities and so on and so forth is basically to form a coalition based on labor rights. That's mo the most important thing. Secondly, also foreign policy. As I said, the only alternative 
to this regime is possible through an alternative foreign policy, which also means, of course, an alternative Kurdish policy. Without these labor rights and Kurdish foreign policy, I think it's impossible to build an alternative to this regime. Even if this regime implodes within itself, the opposition might not actually come to power as long as it doesn't offer an alternative. Sinan Berdal is visiting assistant professor at the School of International Relations and the Middle East Studies Program at the University of Southern California. He is the author of The Holy Roman Empire and the Ottomans, From Global Imperial Power to Absolutist States. He spoke with Shahram Agamir. For a status, I am Malihe Razazan. Thank you for listening.